Well, welcome to Graceway Baptist Church and our Sunday School. This is for October the 21st, uh, 24th, pardon me, of 2021. And as we go through this uh, New City Catechism, it's kind of obvious that one of the things that's on their heart is uh, teaching believers to pray. And that certainly would um, resonate well with what the Lord's desire is. His own disciples came and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And um, there's certainly some observations we could make about that one statement that we'll uh, wait and talk about it a little bit later in the lesson. And the question today is, what should we pray? Now, I think that is a relevant question. I think some people might go, why would we ask a question or answer a question rather like that? Because uh, to some people, praying seems to be more natural than it does to others. But then again, I would suppose if I could watch that person, they find it easy just in general to talk and to talk to people. Some people are a little more hesitant to talk. And then especially when we think about um, the human level and they would go, how much more should we be hesitant to talk when we talk to God? In fact, the uh, Bible does say uh, something about letting our words be few and thoughtful. And some people maybe overthink some things or they need a little bit of instruction. And so that's why we're coming um, to this. Now, the other thing could be, let's swing the pendulum the other way. What about those who do find it easy to pray only to find out that they're praying about the wrong things and praying in the wrong way? All of us can use some correction and instruction in this matter of praying. After all, we're approaching the God of the universe. And so uh, we don't just want to pray any old way about any old thing. And we don't want to use, um, as, as Jesus would have said back in the um, days in which he lived, we don't want to pray hypocritically. We don't want to pray like the Gentiles would pray. And that was a euphemism for pagans or lost people. We don't want to do that. We want to do it right. And so to get it right, we go to the word of God. Now, the answer that we're given here, what are we to pray? And it says, the whole word of God directs and inspires us in what we should pray, including the prayer Jesus himself taught us. Well, that would be the Lord's Prayer, right? And uh, we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later. But the one we're looking at right now is um, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 21. A little longer section of scripture than they normally give us. This is the Apostle Paul, of course. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom... Every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God, or the love of Christ, pardon me, that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with, the, with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly 
than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Uh, if we were just to take time to look at that scripture, if you were to take time to look at that scripture, you could talk about it for a long time. You could have several lessons out of that. The book of Ephesians is so incredibly rich and uh, powerful in what it tells us about God and what it tells us about salvation, what it tells us about ourselves and what we are to do. But um, the point in that one that we're covering now is Paul said, these are uh, the reasons that I pray. And he is showing us how he prayed for the Ephesian believers. And so we can look, of course, at uh, Jesus' prayer, the model prayer, our Father which art in heaven, and we can learn from that. But we also, because this prayer is inspired by the Holy Spirit, we get a little insight into how one of the greatest Christians to ever live, the Apostle Paul, how he prayed and uh, what the subject of his prayer might have been. Now, uh, as we look at this prayer that Paul prayed in Ephesians, think about this. Whenever we pray, what are we to pray? How are we to pray? And what does it look like? And the first thing that comes to mind is just the word reverence. Sometimes I think we have gotten the idea that God is just such a close friend and almost like he's a peer to us. And that would be that would be wrong. There's only one God and he's not us and we're not him. And the fact that we can have fellowship with him and even speak to him, that says more about him, his mercy, love, grace, sending his son to be the sacrifice for our sins and then raising him from the dead so that he can be our great high priest and our mediator between God the Father and sinful man. That says a whole lot more about God than it does us. Now, to be sure, the fact that we have to have a sacrifice in order to pray and have to have a high priest in order to pray, that does say something about us. It speaks of the depths of our sin and um, depravity, but it also speaks much more about his love and about his grace to be able to do that and to provide that for sinners like us. Praise his name for that. So he says, um, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And he talks about the glory and the power and the wonder of God himself. Because, well, think about this. The posture is not really the issue. I know he says, I bow my knee. And that's a fine way to do it. But the posture, you find different postures of prayer in the Bible. Sometimes they would pray standing. Sometimes they would be laying on the floor. Sometimes they would be on their knees. And, um, you know, a lot of times when we sing, we, we may lift our hands to the Lord. That was actually a Jewish posture for prayer. They would raise their hands and, and pray to Yahweh. Um, lifting your hands signifies lifting your heart up to the Lord. It signifies surrender to the Lord. Um, all of those kind of things, reverence to him. And uh, in this case, though, Paul said, for this reason, I 
bow my knees, and that's certainly fine, but you don't have to do that every time. In fact, if you'll think about the command where we're told to pray without ceasing, it's impossible to do that and always have your knee bowed, isn't it? So uh, the posture is not really the main thing, but it does represent reverence. Back in the day of Paul, you didn't bow before anyone but a superior. You would bow before a king. You would bow and take a knee before something that you are someone that you really wanted to um, honor. You might uh, get on your knees if you were a pagan Roman before a, a statue of a god or goddess or something like that. And so Paul is making it clear here that he is having great reverence for God the Father. And then he even talks about him, the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And that's not um, a literal statement about everybody having a certain name because of God, but talking about the fact that he is the one that is the creator and the cause for everything that exists. And so humans are made in the image of God and everything else is created by him too. And so there's a sense creatively now, creatively, where we all belong to God. Now, relationally, we don't because we're born separated from God, as you know, and it's only through the new birth, through salvation, that we become children of God. But um, Paul is talking about the creative aspect here and um, everything is coming from God and derives its life from God and owes its life to God. Now, that means that everybody on the earth ought to be giving glory to God and um, everything else does. The heavens declare the glory of God and all of that. And uh, what in the world is our problem when God has blessed us so much above the animals and the plants and we ought to be praising him as well. But Paul seems to also be telling us that what you believe about God is what really matters. See, if you have a faulty theology, a faulty view of God, then that's going to affect the way that you pray. The way that you pray. If you think that God is just a figment of our imagination, some people talk about that, and it's you know interesting that when you watch the way the world acts about things. When there's a tragedy, they will mention God and they will mention prayer. They don't need him any other time. But it's not really the God of the Bible. It's a God of their own making. And, and basically what they say when they talk about praying for you is, I'll be thinking of you. Well, that's nice, but I don't know what good that really does. And uh, it's kind of like saying just best wishes or cross your fingers or knock on wood or any other superstitious kind of thing that Christians ought not do or say. And um, it, it just doesn't really have any power. But when you believe that God is the one who has always existed, when you believe that he is the one who has created all things, when you believe that he is the ultimate power in the universe... When you believe that he sent his son to pay for our sins because only he could provide the proper sacrifice to pay for our sins so that he could show mercy to us but also exercise his justice at the broken law, that changes the way you approach God and even the way that you pray. 
And uh, this, this idea, notion that God is just kind of like a, a buddy that we can just crawl up in his lap and, um, you know, that type of thing. I don't ascribe to that. I don't believe that's the way the Bible teaches us. In fact, whenever it talks about being a friend of God, that shouldn't make us want to, you know, treat him like a teddy bear or something. That ought to humble us before him that he would ever want to uh, do anything like that because that all comes from him. And remember, everything will flow from God to us. And so even when we talk about prayer, it's uh, something that God has given us the honor and the privilege to do because of his love, because of his grace, because of his mercy. And it's not just simply because we're who we are and he's a desperate, lonely, needy God that he would you know, want us to pray. Um, some people make God sound so incredibly pitiful that it's not even funny. And think about him as a redeemer. He's the one that planned our salvation. We never would have come up with anything like this at all, would we? Everything we would do would be like uh, the offering of Cain. I'll do my very best to bring it to God. Surely he'll accept that. And you remember how that went. Or it'll be like building the Tower of Babel. We'll build something so high, so spectacular, and that will glorify us and show our ingenuity. And we'll get to the point of being up with God. And you know how that went. Or it can be the uh, worship of things that we create. That's a really odd thing when you think about it. We should be worshiping our creator, not things that we have created out of wood or stone and bowing before them. Or it comes to the problem of the Pharisees who thought that by keeping moral law and traditions that somehow they could attain a state of righteousness before God. Well, when you understand who God is and what prayer really is and what it is that God demands, you realize that we all fall short of the glory of God, no matter how good we may seem to be in the eyes of other people. And to think that this God who created the universe, who controls the universe and sustains all of it, the one who created us is also the one that comes to us. That is an amazing thing. After Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they did a very foolish thing. Instead of running to God, they did what humans always do. They ran from God and they hid themselves from God. How do you hide from an all-knowing, all-seeing God? And the answer is you don't, you don't. And so when God comes walking in the garden and he says, Adam, where are you? That wasn't a statement that God had no idea where they were. That was more designed to get Adam to fess up, as we say. I'm over here. Well, why are you over there? I hid because I was afraid of you. Have you eaten from the fruit of the tree that I have forbidden you to eat from? And God, of course, already knew that. And Adam had to admit what he had done. And that reminds us that when we think about God and his greatness and his power, Christian, don't ever run from your father, but run to him. And when you find yourself in a state of sin, when you find yourself doing something that you know you shouldn't do, don't try to hide it, confess it. Don't run from God and, and you know, put away prayer in your Bible and worship and all of that until you are under such conviction that you have to do something 
Um, go to him immediately. Go to him as soon as you sin. He already knows it. You might as well talk to him about it. And so for Paul, this was a great motivation because of who God is. That was his reason for praying. Secondly, it's for the strengthening of believers. What should we pray for? The strengthening of other believers. You know, I think that uh, we have this tendency because of who we are and because of our old nature, we have a tendency to think that prayer is about me and about me getting what I want and that God, if I'll pray and if I'll kind of schmooze him a little bit and say the right words, then he'll do what I want him to do. And nothing can be further from the truth. In fact, God puts a high priority on the fact that we would be thinking of other people when we pray. All through the Bible, there are instances of people praying for other people in other situations. In fact, if you go to uh, John chapter 17, Jesus there, when he prays, it's as if he just can't help but pray, not about the situation that he's facing, not about him going to the cross, but praying for the subjects of his redemption. I don't pray for these alone, but he even prays for those who will believe through their word, and that would be us. In fact, when the Bible talks about Christ being raised from the dead, why is he seated at the right hand of God the Father? To be sure, he is there to be our advocate and to be our defender against the accuser of the brethren, the devil. But it also says he ever lives to make intercession for us. He lives to pray. He lives to pray, and not for himself, but to pray for us. And we find this reflected in the heart of the Apostle Paul. And I would uh, be willing to say that the more full of Christ you are, the more Christ-like you are, the more your prayer is going to be reflected in praying about the glory of the Father, as Paul started out this prayer, and for the blessing and the needs of others more so than yourself. So a little challenge is, whenever you evaluate your prayer life, what percentage of your prayer is about you? What percentage of your prayer is about others? And what percentage of your prayer would be about God and just who he is? And do you ever take time where you kind of set yourself aside and you focus on God and you just praise him, honor him, thank him, recite his attributes? There's nothing wrong with that. That's a glorious thing to do. And it's very good for us as well. And how often do you set aside your own needs for the purpose of praying for somebody else? There's a lot of people suffering. And we sometimes, in the midst of our trials, we tend to think that maybe we're the only ones and we're suffering greater burdens than anyone else. I mean, Job, step aside. I've got these problems. And I think instinctively we know that's not true. But there's something about pain and suffering and trials and storms that cause us to become very selfish, right? And we forget about all of the people who have suffered worse than we do. Mama always used to say, didn't she, that uh, if you'll look around, you'll find somebody who's worse off than you are. And sometimes we may find that hard to believe, especially when trouble seems to pile up. But if you look around, you'll find that mama was right. In fact, it's biblical 
because the Apostle Peter tells us in his first epistle that the sufferings in this world are common to us, right? That the sufferings we experience are common to man. And so uh, we need to remember that and we can always find other people who need our prayer. And sometimes I'm convinced God allows us to go through certain things so that it opens our eyes to the sufferings of other people. Um, I've watched and um, sometimes I've seen people that are somewhat insensitive get a diagnosis of cancer and then go through the rigors of chemotherapy and uh, just watching, you know how terrible that is and how hard that is. Now they have a new compassion. Whenever they hear someone has cancer, they're one of the first ones to go to them or to pray for them, to minister to them because they know what it's like. They've walked a mile in his shoes, in other words. And I think sometimes God allows us to go through things and to feel things. Sometimes it's for discipline. Sometimes it's punitive. But I think a lot of times it is because we need our eyes opened to the sufferings of others. I think one of the sins of American Christians is we very rarely think about or pray for persecuted believers. Why? Because we don't really experience it to the degree that they do. To think that there are people, while we whine about the little things that trip us up and bother us and cause us to be unfaithful, there are people like you that are in prison and they can't see their family, they can't take care of their family, they're being beaten and tortured in some cases, and the temptation is to, of course, deny their faith and do whatever the authorities want them to do or say, and all the while, they have a wife who's at home trying to take care of children, and um, they have a church that, you know, who else is being raided or imprisoned or martyred for their faith. I mean, think about all of the things that they have to handle and we forget to pray for them. That's why the book of Hebrews says we're to remember those who are in chains. Well, I hope we never have to go through that in order to actually remember that. But it would be fair, I guess, if something like that happened to us because uh, sometimes the only way we really get it is to go through it. And so I want you to think about the things that you've been through. And um, you can probably name some things that a person never ought to go through and you would never wish to go through. But could you turn that around and say, Lord, I'm not the only one that has gone through this. I'm not the only one that's been divorced. And I know the pain and the horror of an unfaithful spouse. And I know what it does to the children. I know what it does emotionally and spiritually and all of these things, maybe um, if you've been through something like that, you ought to have more compassion and you ought to be able to uh, pray better for someone who's going through it and have your eyes open to all of that. And maybe if you've been to church and you've ever sat by yourself and been lonely and wondered why people didn't help me instead of condemning the whole church and forsaking the church, Maybe that's a time to say, I'm going to make sure that that never happens again and to pray for lonely people and to keep your eye out for new people and people that don't quite fit in. I mean, somebody's got to minister to the weird people too, right? Just a joke. And um, we need to have our eyes open 
and we need to be able to, uh, uh, to help them. And I think Paul could pray for this in the way that he did because he knew what it was like to be a new convert, to not really know anything. He had to spend three years in the desert. Remember the book of Galatians tells us that was his seminary training. And before that, all he knew was the Old Testament law, and he didn't fully understand how it pointed to Christ and pointed to grace. And so he had to learn. And over time, he became a very strong believer. So he prays that according to the rich of his, riches of his glory, excuse me, he may grant you to be strengthened. That's passive. That has to come from the Lord. We don't do it ourselves with power. And where do we get that power? Where do we plug into that? Through his spirit. And where does the spirit give power? And if you uh, watch very much TV and see TV preachers, the power that they usually always talk about is physical. It's all about healing. But Paul said, in your inner being, in your inner man, that new nature, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And um, we talk about the sufficiency of Christ, the need for Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the knowledge of, uh, of that comes to us in the inner man where the real need and where the real battles are fought, where the str- real strength resides. And uh, we do that so that we are walking with Jesus. He's dwelling within us through that Holy Spirit and through that power. And our lives reflect that. Our lives show that. And they are compatible with that. There's nothing worse than someone who professes Christ, but it doesn't seem as though they have the power of Christ because their life doesn't really reflect Jesus and the things that Jesus loves. Thirdly, notice that Paul mentions here as he prays for these believers for growth and stability that you, and notice the term he uses here, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to know the love that passes knowledge is kind of interesting, but it reminds us that anything we know and experience about God has to be revealed to us. We can't discover it. We don't have that capability. But also notice he uses kind of a tree term, rooted and grounded in love. And if you've ever had anything to do with trees, you know that their roots go out and sometimes they mess up your yard. But the roots also keep the tree from falling over, don't they? They give stability. It's grounded by its roots. But the roots also give it nourishment. That's where the tree gets the nutrients it needs to, uh, to live. And it also gets the moisture that it needs. And so rooted and grounded, you can see the imagery there of what Paul is saying. He's wanting these people to have stability so that they're not tossed about by every wind and wave of doctrine or blown around by their circumstances. The groundedness of the roots is what the tree uh, it uses to withstand the storms that may come from time to time. And he also wants them to be well fed. Some people think that, well, I go to church to get fed. And I hope you do get fed when you come to church. But boy, you would sure be a skinny weakling if that's the only time you're ever fed. You'd be that 98 pound weakling that gets 
sand kicked in his face. And we don't want you to be like that. And Paul doesn't want you to be like that either because he wants you to have strength and to have strength where it really, really counts. And that is, of course, in the inner man. And he talks about knowing this incomprehensible love of Christ. And that is something that is really precious because when we talk about it, God's love, how wide is God's love? Well, it's wide enough for anyone, anywhere, at any time, right? We see that as the gospel goes throughout all the world. But also, it talks about his length. How long is it? Well, it's an everlasting love. It's an eternal love. And once you enter into the love of Christ through salvation, you'll never be cast out. God be for us, who can be against us? What can separate us from the love of Christ? Remember that in Romans chapter 8. It talks about his height. How high is it? It's from God all the way in eternity past as he chose you in grace before the foundation of the world. And how deep does it go? Well, it reached down to this depraved dead sinner, made him alive and brought me into the love of Christ. And so this is not instinctive for humans. It has to be revealed by God. And it's revealed, of course, through the scripture. And then fourthly, for God to be glorified forever. Such a theme of scripture, a theme of the book of Ephesians, especially. And that's even the theme of the uh, model prayer that the Lord Jesus gave us in Matthew. For God to be glorified forever. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than uh, all that we ask or think. You know, when you imagine, use your imagination to the nth degree and you don't even come close to the ability of God. You think about everything you've asked for. You haven't even asked for it enough to matter yet because God can do far beyond anything that you can ask. You ask with limitations. You ask with what you can comprehend. And God is far above that. Now to him who is able to do, um, I memorized it in the New King James, exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. And then he says, according to the power at work within us. What's the power at work within us? The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit came to reside in us at the point of salvation. We were baptized in the Holy Spirit. He made us spiritually alive so that Romans 8, 16, his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And Paul prayed for us to be strengthened in the inner man. That's our new nature, our spirit being. And so uh, that's what this is talking about. And so God is at work doing far more than we could ever ask or comprehend, and he is doing it with the power that, it, that is in us because God himself dwells within us. And then Paul can't help it. To him be glory in the church. Uh, folks, don't ever discount church. Don't ever think that it's just me and Jesus and I don't need the church. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. He placed you in the body. He gave you to be a member with a gift in the body, and you ought to be faithful to the body. And uh, church is important. And notice that this passage says that Christ receives his glory 
in the church. There's just something about a group of worshipers coming together in the power of the Holy Spirit, singing his praise, praying to him, hearing his word, responding to that word, building up one another. Hey, don't rob us by your absence. Don't rob us of the blessing of being around you because as God works in you, God wants that to spread to us. And so you help me and I'll help you and we'll help one another as we uh, go along our way. And how long do we do this? And he says throughout all generations, it's an intergenerational thing. I can't live off of grandma's faith and neither can you. I can't live off of my mom and dad's faith and neither can you. It's got to be a fresh supply, kind of like the manna in the Old Testament. They were to pick it up every single day and not store it up except for the Sabbath, of course. And you and I need to remember that as well. We need a fresh supply of the power of God. And uh, we need that for all generations. And how long? Forever and ever. Amen, he says. This is going to be something that goes on and on and on because the glory of Christ is going to be something that we are going to participate in even when we get to heaven for an eternity. And so... um, When prayer is not answered the way that we want, it's not because of God's inability. Well, I prayed this, and I guess God just couldn't pull it off. It's not like asking for the Christmas gift that your parents can't afford. It's never the case. We have a wise, loving God who answers things according to His will, and He answers it according to His plan and according to His timing. So that prayer, maybe it'll be answered later on. Maybe it'll be answered after you die. Who knows? But it's not because of his inability. And he does what he does through his power that is in us. God's presence is with us, and we never lack the power to do anything that he wants us to do. And he does it so that he can bring glory in the church throughout all generations. And so our generation... We can be blessed, of course, by the Word of God. But aren't we also blessed when we read about people like Martin Luther and John Calvin? Aren't we blessed when we read about the Wesleys and when we uh, read about the Moody's and people like that? There's something about the various generations from the time when the church was established and empowered by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, and we hear about believers and the martyrs, and we hear about faithful evangelists and preachers, and then even just regular people, moms and dads and uh, children and others who honored the Lord Jesus Christ throughout history and were sold out to Him and the impact that they're still making today. God wants to do that, not just in past generations, not just for the William Tyndalls and the John Knoxes and and those kind of people in history, but he wants to use us to bring glory to his name for future generations until the Lord comes. Now, what if the Lord doesn't come for 500 years? How will our church and how how will our lives be seen? as people that were more passionate about eating, more passionate about football games, more passionate about whatever politics than we were about Christ? Or could we shine as a bright light in this generation and then long after we're gone, could we shine as a bright light that encourages other generations who may have it far worse than we do? 
And as you think about our student ministry and Isaac and Jenny, and as you think about our children's ministry and all that are involved in that and our nursery ministry and Bethany and her work back there that we appreciate so much, I want you to think about it not as, well, it's just one of those things you have to do, but we're the real church. No, we're not. No, we're not. They're involved in it too. And it's our job to pray for them and raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord because those teenagers that you see that you may not make think much of, they may be the ones that actually do suffer the real persecution and maybe even martyrdom here in the United States of America. And we have the chance to pour into them and pray into them the things that they are going to need later on. And this would be a good prayer to pray for them. So you get it? We have a purpose and a reason for where we are, and it's bigger than us. It goes through all generations and all the way into eternity. And if we really understood that, we wouldn't have to beg anybody to ever pray. So let me just conclude by saying praying scripture, now that means in context and properly interpreted, is to pray within the will of God. That's how you get that right. Pray the word of God. First John chapter 5 verse 14 says, And this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. And so what is the key there? The will of God. How do we know the will of God? Through the word of God. So take the word of God as your model, folks. And don't just take isolated verses that you may or may not understand. Take paragraphs of scripture. And as you read through it in your quiet time, turn that into the launch pad for your prayers and make sure that as you pray, you pray for the glory of the Father, not just about yourself. And make sure that you also take time to pray for other people. And Paul gives us a model for that here. So God bless you as you pray. My prayer has been for some time now that God would raise up intercessors, prayer warriors like never before in our church. And I pray that you will be indeed one of those. Thank you for your time. God bless you teachers and God bless those of you who are doing this to keep up with your Sunday school class. We look forward to having you with us very, very soon. And I hope you have a great rest of your week. And again, thank you and God bless you.